Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 61. Today, I will be talking about the 1984 murder of Brad Perry. My sources for this episode are Cold Case Files, Season 1, Episode 5, titled The Night Shift, AttorneyGeneral.Utah.gov, Deseret.com, ABC4.com, People.com, Archive.sltrib.com, USU.edu, and KSL.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. I knew something was going on, and they killed him for it. This young man is murdered in a violent, horrific manner. I was blaming God for what happened. He was a good guy, and why would God let him die? Brad Perry was just 21 years old at the time of his death. In 1984, he worked full-time at a Taxico gas station in Perry, Utah, near his home in Brigham City. Brad decided to work the night shift to save money for school and his upcoming wedding. On May 26, 1984, Brad was working his usual shift. Around 3.50 to 4 a.m., two students attending Utah State drove up to the gas station after a long night of studying. The students pulled up to a self-serving gas pump. A man came out, who the two men believed was the attendant. The attendant told them not to go inside the store. One of the students paid the man with five $1 bills. The other wanted cigarettes, so he gave the man a $5 bill. The attendant went into the store and came back out with $4 and change. He told the student that the cigarettes were only a dollar even, which was odd. The students also noticed that the money was covered in blood along with the attendant's hand. He also had blood on his shoes. The students decided to get out of there as quickly as they could, and about five to six miles down the road, they stopped at a payphone and called the police. Within five minutes, the police arrived at the Texaco gas station. There was blood in front of the store on the tile. The blood trail led to the back room. A person was found in the back room. He was obviously deceased. He was lying in a pool of blood and had his hands tied behind his back with a wire. He had been stabbed with a foot-long screwdriver, a cast iron bell had been used to hit the victim, causing the skull fracture, and a 40-pound soda canister had also been used to crush his skull. The victim was identified as Brad Perry by his identification in his wallet. The police knew Brad and his family. The Perrys were a tight-knit Mormon family and described as very good people. The victim and his family... They're well-known for being good people. Brad had everything going for him. He was engaged to be married. He worked full-time, went to school. So there was a heartfelt concern for the family. Brad's brother Lee, his mom Claudia, and one of their other brothers had been in California when they found out about Brad's death. Lee said that his mom became physically ill when they were driving back to Utah. And had also got, and they had also gotten a flat tire on the way home. We started to drive toward Utah, and then I remember us on the freeway in California getting a flat tire. The worst part for me was to see my mom get out and get physically ill. I was the oldest son at that point with my brother gone, and I just was like. As a, as, a, as a man, I was like, I gotta protect my mom. About two hours after Brad was found, the two students that had called 911 were interviewed by the police. They remembered what the man had, that had approached them had looked like. 
They especially remembered his dark, empty eyes. The two students were able to work with the police sketch artist. They had a very vivid drawing done of the man. The police's first theory was that someone that Brad had worked with had been involved. The gas pumps had to be reset inside and the floor safe had been, had been opened. Brad didn't even have the keys to the floor safe. The only person that did have access was the assistant manager, a man named Thomas Nager. The police learned that Thomas hadn't shown up for his 6 a.m. shift. However, he did show up at the scene after Brad's body was discovered. When the police spoke to Thomas, he appeared nervous. He also resembled the police sketch. The police asked Thomas why he hadn't shown up for his shift. He said he overslept and that Brad was supposed to wake him up. A fingerprint expert had been called to the scene and a forensic vacuum was used in the store. Some hairs were located as well as several fingerprints. Thomas's fingerprints were not found in the store, despite him having worked there for years. He was released for now, but the police kept a close eye on him. About 18 hours after Brad was found, the police saw a man walking southbound on Highway 89. He matched the composite sketch as well and also had blood on his shirt and hands. A police lineup was done, but the two students didn't pick the man out of the lineup. It was another dead end. In June 1984, about two weeks after the murder, Brad was laid to rest and his family went to Montana to get away from the media. It helped when we went to Montana because we got away from the scene. The idea was get our minds off of what had happened, hopefully, and get something more positive in our minds at that point. When the Perrys returned home, their house had been vandalized and burglarized. Someone had also defecated in Brad's bedroom. The Perrys told the police to look into their neighbor, Craig Martinez. Craig was not a model citizen. In fact, his nickname was Monster due to his temper. The police searched Craig's bedroom and found items from the Perry's home under his mattress. Several witnesses had also come forward. They said Craig had come to a party on the night of the murder with blood on his clothes. The police also discovered that Craig was friends with Thomas. Thomas had been selling drugs out of the gas station. Craig had either bought drugs from him or helped him with the distribution of drugs. The police's next theory was that Brad had caught on to their drug selling and was killed because he knew too much. Craig's fingerprints were collected, but they weren't found at the crime scene. The case went very cold. Lee started to distance himself from his family. He began to drink, which is against the LDS church. He also discovered Brad's journals. He realized that Brad didn't ever blame anyone, especially God, for the things that happened to him. He was in a bike accident in April of 1982 and had gotten severe facial injuries. Brad wrote that these things happened. Brad's family wondered if the case would ever be solved. Brad's case was reopened in May 1995, 11 years after his murder. The case was reviewed and the evidence was looked over again. The detectives realized that the hair has, that had been collected had never been tested against Thomas or Craig's. When the police requestioned Thomas, he told them that it was Craig Martinez that had killed Brad. On March 10, 2003, a warrant was obtained for Craig's hair. He was incarcerated in the Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah at the time. When the SWAT team brought Craig to speak to the police, they were stunned. Craig had completely shaved his whole body and head. Craig taunted the police that they couldn't collect his hair. However, a nurse at the prison was able to collect a hair from his nipple. The hair was not a match. 18 years after Brad's death, a woman named Amy Huggy ran for Box Elder County Attorney. Amy had known the Perrys as Brad had babysat for her family. to try to do as much as I could for this case and for the Perrys to give them some peace. 
Brad would babysit for my parents when they would go and play cards with Claudia and Newell. He used to like to be the monster underneath the blanket. He'd put a big blanket over the top of him, and you know, if you came anywhere near the blanket, he'd he'd grab you, and um, you know, tickle you. In. Amy helped the police earn extra funds for all the evidence to be retested. All of the DNA that had been found at the crime scene actually belonged to Brad. The police's last hope was the $1 bill that had been given back to the two Utah State students. It had been preserved in the state crime lab freezer. The state crime lab told the police that it was probably Brad's blood, but the police were not going to give up. Two months went by and the police received the news that there was a hit. The blood had belonged to a man named Glenn Griffin. Glenn Griffin was, an unknown, was unknown to the police and had never been on anyone's radar. Griffin had been in and out of prison most of his adult life. At the time of the discovery, he had been in prison in Lompoc, California, for operating a meth lab. The police also found Griffin's mother, who lived in Jerriam, Utah, not far from Brigham City. His mother told them that Glenn was hard to control. He often stole money and harmed animals. The police asked for photos of Glenn from 1984, and sure enough, he looked like the composite sketch. The police also believed that Glenn didn't act alone. They asked Glenn's mom who Glenn was friends with, and she said Glenn often hung out with Wade Mon. They often committed crimes together, but Glenn was the ringleader. The police were able to track Wade down in Spokane. They spoke to the police there and learned that Wade was also another witness in another police investigation. They were able to speak with him, though. So we got your permission to, to record this. And that's when we said, wait, this is not about that incident that occurred here in Spokane. This is about the murder of Brad Perry in 1984. This is the crime we're talking about. Oh, my God. Wade, I, I can't express this enough. You've got to be open and honest with us. So what happened when you got him in the back room? At first, Wade didn't want to talk. Look at this kid. He's 22 years old. He had a fiance. He had his whole life in front of him. And somebody snuffed out. But then we got into the conversation. And I says, Wade Glenn is being released from federal prison. And you could see the blood just drain from his face. So now I'm starting to think about that night, that early in the morning. You know, I did. I do remember. Wade told the police that the argument had been over beer. Brad told the two men to leave, and that's when Glenn went crazy. When the two students had shown up, Brad was still alive. Glenn went outside, the students drove away, and then Brad was taken into the back room, tortured and killed. The police asked Wade if he had help because they knew that Glenn wouldn't have been able to do it alone. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. That was one of the guys' legs. He's holding it. Holding my down. In June 2005, Detective Scott Cosgrove interviewed Glenn. Detective Cosgrove said when he looked into Glenn's beady eyes, he knew he was looking at Brad's killer. Glenn told him that he was familiar with the Texaco gas station but had never been there. Detective Cosgrove asked Glenn about his DNA being on the bloody dollar bill. Glenn said he was always cutting his hands at work and could have been transported that way. Glenn then stopped the interview. The evidence was circumstantial and Wade Mon was granted immunity, but he refused to testify. He was still afraid of Glenn to this day. A mitochondrial DNA test was done. 
The hairs at the scene were also compared to Glenn's, and it was a 99.94 match. In 2008, Glenn Griffin was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. Wade was tried in 2010, but was acquitted. Lee Perry became a law enforcement officer to catch the Glenn Griffins of the world. I was satisfied that this was solved. I'm convinced that Brad was with me on this journey and he wanted me to find some peace for his family. What has helped me probably the most is the gospel, is the church I belong to. I feel that Brad's fine. He's just on to another sphere. And I feel like I'll see him again. The police did an amazing job in this case. They never gave up. While it seems like the evidence is circumstantial, it all led the police to one person, Glenn Griffin. I still have questions about the safe being open when Glenn obviously didn't work at the station. However, Brad's life was taken away over some damn beer. I think Wade was afraid of Glenn, but that's no excuse to help a man kill another human being. He should have at least served time in prison for this if he was unwilling to testify in court. My book recommendation for this week is The Resemblance by Lauren Nossett. Summary. Never betray the brotherhood. On a chilly November morning at the University of Georgia, a fraternity brother steps off a busy crosswalk and is struck dead by an oncoming car. More than a dozen witnesses all agree on two things. The driver looked identical to the victim and he was smiling. Detective Mar Marlett Kaplan is the first on the scene. An Athens native and the daughter of a UGA professor, she knows all its shameful histories from the skull discovered under the foundations of Baldwin Hall to the hushed-up murder-suicide in Waddell. But in the course of investigating this hit-and-run, she will uncover more chilling secrets as she explores the sprawling, interconnected Greek system that entertains and delights the university's most elite and connected students. The lines between Marlet's police work and her own past increasingly blur as Marlet seeks to bring justice an institution that took something precious from her many years ago. When threats against her escalate and some long-buried secrets threaten to come onto the surface, she can't help questioning whether the corruption in Athens has run off campus and into the forest and how far these brotherhoods will go to protect their own. I had covered a case on my blog a few months earlier about a college student named Timothy Piazza. He attended a fraternity event, was hazed, and died. Several students covered up the crime, and no one was really held responsible. This book was eerily similar. There are way too many cases similar as well, and nine times out of ten, no one is held responsible. This book was very well written and haunting. I give it a nine out of ten. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, buy me a coffee, and leave me a five-star rating or review, or both. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere. <laughs>